Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. One of the defining characteristics of 21st century politics is, of course, and this is almost a cliche to say, globalization, but there's a darker kind of globalization that's emerging, something that that is really important, I think, not remarked upon enough in the international press, and it's called the globalization of authoritarianism. That is to say, anti-democratic regimes have figured out ways to exert their influence internationally through a variety of different mechanisms. We're going to talk about this today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, through two recent examples. One is Fox News host Tucker Carlson's visit to Budapest, where he's aligned himself with the authoritarian leader of Hungary, Viktor Orban. And second, the Olympics controversy surrounding a Belarusian sprinter who fled the country and sought asylum in Poland after criticizing her coach and the Olympic Committee run by the dictator's son. So two different things, but ultimately linked together in exposing the different ways authoritarians exercise influence abroad. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Jen Kirby. Hey. Hello. Hello, Jens. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh, Pretty great. How are you? Well, I'm coming <laughs> to you from a different undisclosed location in Canada, this time in cottage country. So I was tempted to tape the episode like outside where I could see the lake. And it would be really nice and pretty. But I figured, like, uh, all the mosquito buzzing would not really make for a good audio track for the people who wanted to listen to this. Um, So, look, it's really pretty here. Not so much in the room that I've shut myself in to record. But, like, in general, you know. Oh, and and our producer, Sophie, is now warning me about wind. As if I didn't have enough reasons not to tape outside like an idiot. But... (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you for that intervention, Sophie. Um, so, yeah, let's talk. I think we're going to talk about Tucker Carlson first. Uh, Great. Because uh, I find this, this is like a, a convergence of a series of my personal obsessions. Uh, and so I, Wait, I, I'm Wait, you're really into interested in like authoritarian regimes and right-wing authoritarianism and Hungary's act? No. Yeah, nobody nobody knows that about me. It's not. It's really really <laughs> a well kept secret on the part of my journalistic <laughs> interests, and, and for you, worldly listeners who definitely did not listen to me tape some podcasts about my trip to Hungary when I went there in 2018. Exactly. Uh, so, since this is like my Venn diagram of obsessions, like the little sliver there, I guess I'll start with the traditional introduction. So, yeah, tell us. Uh, as you as you may be aware of or may not be, Tucker Carlson is the highest-rated host on cable news in the United States on Fox. He is also one of the most reliably populist, right-wing, anti-immigrant, insert-your-adjective, arguably Trumpy people in this sort of U.S. intellectual-slash-popular-news firmament. So this week, Tucker decides to broadcast 
from Budapest. And there, you know, there are lots of reasons to go to a different country if you're a journalist and and report from there, or if you're a cable news host to host from there, like maybe you're doing some investigative stuff. He, as it turns out, is filming a documentary, and it's very clear from the way that he's set up his monologue so far that he's going to be touting Hungary as a, as a model for the United States, as a country that Americans should learn from. Uh, this visit seems to have been brokered in part by Rod Dreher, who is a very, very right-wing social conservative in the United States, uh, who is currently a fellow at a government-run think tank in Budapest. He encouraged Carlson to come and worked with the Hungarian government to like get rid of the the restrictions standing in the way of Carlson moving his show here, whatever those were. It seemed like it was a regulatory thing. So according to Dreyer, right, this is this all was a, like a brokered, seemingly a, a PR operation in part by the Hungarian government, which had been in the past lobbying to try to get the Prime Minister Viktor Orban onto Tucker Carlson's show and interviewed by him. Like they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this particular topic. So what what we're what we have here is an American cable news host going to an authoritarian country and saying, Hey America, look at this authoritarian. Maybe we should be more like him. That's the basic outline of what's happening. Seems bad. I don't know. Seems seems not good. Uh, I think it's, you know, really fascinating too. Like it's not just that Tucker Carlson is gone to Budapest and, and is just like hanging out there and like, oh, reporting from a different country. Like this is fun. Like he's explicitly doing it to to raise the profile of uh, for Orban's kind of liberal, you know, democratic backsliding project, although that's obviously not how he would frame it. He said uh, at one point, uh, quote, if you care about Western civilization and democracy and families and the ferocious assault on all three of those things by the leaders of our global institutions, you should know what is happening here right now. And so he's talking about, you know, this kind of fantasy idea that he has in his head, I guess, about liberals, uppercase L and lowercase L, multiculturalism, immigration, LGBTQ rights, all kinds of things that a lot of us tend to think are, are good things. And saying that, you know, Viktor Orban is is pushing back against all these things. And Tucker Carlson obviously thinks that's a good thing and defending, you know, what he calls families and democracy, even though the reality is that, like, by cracking down on on the free press, uh, Orban is dismantling Hungary's democracy step by step, not just the free press, um, gerrymandering, you know, the elections so that he can maintain power, you know, stacking the judiciary with his own cronies so that there's no real check on his power. And then, you know, really ginning up this kind of, I mean, he, he openly boasts, right, about being an illiberal democracy, right? Like he's not, he's not subtle about it, right? Yeah, Jen, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting what you say, you mentioned the quote that Tucker Carlson gave about sort of why we need to pay attention to what Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, because if you care about democracy and, and families, and it's like, yes, that's exactly why we need to pay attention, because it is exactly the playbook of how you go from a democracy into something but. But of course, Tucker Carlson meant it in a different way. But I think what is the most interesting about Tucker Carlson's trip, and I think both you, Jen, and Zach hit on this, is that in many ways, Republicans see the, see Orban as offering a really effective playbook for the future of the, I guess, the Republican Party, but potentially the United States of America in that, you know, you you don't want necessarily 
somebody like Trump, right, who is very open about what he wants to do, who will literally say that he, you know, wants to his Justice Department to say that the election is rigged. They want something a little bit more subtle, a little bit more gradual. And I think, Zach, as you've written, uh, this is part of some of the policies that the Republican Party is now enacting here at home. Yeah, look, it's it's a tricky thing, right? Because I don't see a lot of evidence that uh, Republican gerrymandering ideas came from Hungary, even though Hungary has also gerrymandered its electoral district. Yeah, we have so, a robust history of that in our own country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, we don't need to look elsewhere for that idea. It's more like convergent evolution, right? You know, this, right. this concept in evolutionary theory where things that are or animals and species in different places end up sort of converging on a similar design or image or look, right? Because that's most adaptive to various different circumstances, right? In this case, what we have is two countries, one much, much larger than the other, and both with very, very different histories, converging, uh, at least two parties, I should say more accurately, two right-wing parties, converging on a similar model for weakening democratic institutions in order to preserve, protect, and expand their, old, their own hold on power. And so Hungary is, is a considerable site further down this road than the United States is in terms of, of the corrosion of democratic institutions, right? And, and we could go through dozens of different examples. But the important thing that I want to emphasize for, for this conversation is that it's not just these two countries, right? The, the model that, that's in place in Hungary is what political scientists call competitive authoritarianism. And it's worth unpacking what that means because it seems like kind of a contradictory term, right? Like authoritarian government should not be competitive. Right. But like it, it puts it on a continuum, this kind of government, between something like Russia, where there are elections, but like everybody knows they're a joke, right? And it's I think Russia at one point was a competitive authoritarian regime, but to my mind, crossed the line long ago. Uh, or or Bashar al-Assad Syria, to take a more extreme example, where they have elections, but he wins with like 95, 99% of the, of the vote, right? Like that's a joke. The elections are, are quite obviously a sham. In Hungary, they don't manipulate the vote counts typically, or at least there's not any evidence of that, of stuffing ballots, right? But it's also not a democracy in the sense that people have like a free and fair ability to choose who's going to lead them. Right, though there, there's an election coming up next year, and the opposition, every single opposition party has united into an anti-Orban front, and the polls are pretty close, I don't hold a lot of optimism that the opposition will be able to win a majority against Orban. It's, it's theoretically possible, but given gerrymandering, given the way that they've rigged the electoral system, uh, it seems implausible to me. I could be wrong, but that doesn't mean the election doesn't matter. Right? It seems like it's very plausible that they could win enough seats to be able to deny Orban a two-thirds majority, which is what he needs to, to amend the constitution at will in Hungary, a power they've used, his party, Fidesz, has used quite a bit. That, that's what a competitive authoritarian regime is like, right? Elections are not fair, but they do matter. And the outcomes and, the, and what happens in them is significant for the future of the country. Turkey is another really good example of a competitive authoritarian regime, right? Seems very implausible that Erdogan would be dethroned in an election anytime soon, but... It's very clear from the past few years of Turkish history that elections have had a significant consequence, right, in terms of the direction of the country. And so that that's the model that we're working with in Hungary, and it's the model I worry that the Republican Party is converging upon for its future of the United States. And it's one that's increasingly popular around the world. And the thing that makes it so insidious is that a lot of the people who run these kinds of countries deny that they're an authoritarian regime at all. And because they're 
isn't some kind of obvious marker you can use, right? You can't just say, oh yeah, look at that rigged election, because that's not how they control and exercise power. It's more subtle. You have these interminable, you have these interminable debates with supporters of the regime about like whether or not the election is really fair. It obviously isn't, but they've managed to delude themselves into thinking that it is, or at least have created enough of a, a PR smokescreen that they can make it seem that way. And it seems not just seems, right? The, the Carlson trip proves that among an influential segment of American conservatives, they're they're really falling for it. Right? They are buying what Viktor Orban is selling. Yeah, and it's not new, right? I mean, this is this has been happening, but it is it is relatively new in terms of recent like decades. Because for a while, previously, you know, a lot of Republicans would actually condemn Orban's kind of moves, right? It wasn't just like an automatic thing that members of the GOP like loved Orban it's kind of slowly evolved in that direction, right, Zach? And, uh, you know, I think, too, especially under Trump, we saw a lot of this, um, this kind of, you know, lauding of of Orban's model. Also that, you know, coincides with what Orban was doing, right? Because as Orban became more effective, the, the model that he was laying out became more attractive. But under the Trump administration, like Trump openly praised Orban um, and he would, like, complain, you know, and, and wish that he had the control, especially over the media, and the ability to, you know, silence his opponents. Like, he was like, man, I wish I had what that guy had. Like, we know that. His his former ambassador to Hungary, like, said that Trump said that. Um, well, he said that we Trump have, wished that he had this kind of power. Whether or not Trump actually said it out loud, not clear. But the, the ambassador did say he believes that Trump wants that. Right, right. And, but Trump has said other things. He told reporters, Viktor Orban has done a tremendous job in so many ways. Respected all over Europe probably like me, a little bit controversial, but that's okay. So yeah, uh, it's, you know, he's been pretty open by saying, hey, this is a good guy. You know, he's done great things. And like, if you ask anyone in Europe who cares about liberal democracy, they would say, what? (laughs) No, it's the opposite of what we think. You know, Hungary is in trouble with the EU for lots of things that, you know, Orban keeps doing. You know, they keep running afoul saying, like, you know, there are even threats of, like, oh, should we kick, you know, should we kick Hungary out of the EU even? Because it's becoming this, as you said, competitive authoritarian state, but not, you know, not a real true democracy anymore. Yeah. And I think to Zach's point of why it's so insidious, which combines with what Jen is saying about where Hungary fits in terms of how people view it, is what is so insidious about it is not just that there's no marker towards authoritarianism, but the tools of democracy, you know, elections, elected officials are being used to actually institute and consolidate the authoritarian regime. So it is a lot harder to to challenge against and to find the discourse to actually discuss it. And, you know, that's what's also so kind of contradictory, Jen, as you mentioned with the European Union. Hungary is in trouble, but yet when the EU sanctions, you know, another <laughs> country for anti-democratic measures, you know, we're going to talk about Belarus, like Hungary's part of that. So it's very contradictory because when you are a democracy and you backslide, but you're already somewhat part of the club, it is much, much harder to figure out a way to deal with that actor. So in Hungary's case, it's very, very challenging for the EU to figure out what to do. But what makes it even more difficult is when you have people who are now, particularly in the United States, and I would imagine some right-wing uh, movements in Europe as well actually see Orban as a hero and as somebody to admire and to be followed. And that just complicates it and makes it even more messy. 
Yeah. Uh, so earlier this year, the European People's Party, which is the EU faction uh, that is the umbrella party for center-right factions in, in, in the EU, like so um, Angela Merkel's party, for example, is a member of the EPP, right? the Christian Democrats in Germany. And the EPP kicked out Fidesz earlier this year because of its various different violations of they they say the language is the they, ugh, the language they use is rule of law violations Fidesz right but, being Victor Orban's political party right so on the one hand like it seems that Europe is finally taking this seriously in part that was inspired uh the the sort of escalation not the one earlier this year but uh, some stuff that's happened more recently in terms of EU condemnations and and anger inside the EU by a law in Hungary that seems designed to criminalize LGBT expression to a degree, uh, and that was that was a real bright line for a lot of people in Europe as and inspired mass protests in during the uh, Euro soccer tournament. Yeah, as you may remember, <laughs> we talked about this on the show at one point. But when I was in Hungary in 2018, I remember meeting with a, uh, a former member of parliament who actually was a member of Orban's party. He started out as an anti-communist dissident. And early on in Hungary's democratic transition, his party was like a normal center-right party. That's why they were part of the EPP in the first place. And she told me that he he changed. She saw him firsthand change into a kind of authoritarian first in the way that he structured the party internally, consolidating power in his own hands, and second in his vision for what Hungary would look like. After he was he lost an election in 2002, it, it seems to have really embittered him personally. And when he returned to power in 2010 he started implementing this plan for undermining Hungarian democracy pretty quickly. And what she told me is that by the time the Europeans had started paying attention to Hungary, it was too late, right? The country had already gone down an authoritarian pathway that was very, very difficult to undo by the time that, uh, you know, they they really noticed what Orban was doing. And I, I think she would probably date... The EU paying attention to 2015 when Orban made a huge stink about the refugee crisis because he's very, very anti-immigrant. His sort of anti-immigrant pro-Christianity stance is why American conservatives find him so attractive, right? It's like, uh, in the words of, uh, of Dreher, who I talked about earlier when I spoke to him about this, he was like, Orban, unlike Trump, fights and wins, right? Well, Trump is a fighter. He doesn't win. Orban does and, and has the same set of values as a lot of U.S. conservatives. So... You know, that is is the problem. I think Jen Kirby was just alluding to this, right, with this particular political model. It's not just that, like, observers don't know what to do. It's that actual government bodies are struggling to figure out the kind of response and when to intervene when you're not just, like, interfering with a country's own democratic disputes. Because, like, to a degree, how you run your elections really should be your own country's business. The EU shouldn't be micromanaging elections in... France or Belgium, right? That's like just not their job. But there's a difference between micromanaging and intervening against gross undemocratic abuses. How do you determine what that line is? Is, is a, a tough question, and that's the exact uncertainty that this model of authoritarianism exploits and that helps it build allies in democratic states and other places because they can look at it and be like, how dare you call that undemocratic? That's just a country managing its own affairs. And really all that shows, Lib, is that you hate social conservatives. This is a pretty much a verbatim conversation I've had with people on the right. It's not, that's not hypothetical. Well, I guess, Zach, I'm curious what you think the solution is, right? Because we see this, as you say, this globalization of this right-wing 
ideology and this enthrallment in many respects with the kind of model that Hungary and Orban have created. And because it is so difficult to notice and to stop to figure out where the line is, like, are there any prescriptions to this problem? Like, how do we actually, is it possible to reverse it back? Yeah, I mean, it it seems like finally Europe is doing things that are somewhat necessary, which is trying to figure out, for example, what to do about subsidies to Hungary. So the Orban regime really runs on graft and corruption, right? There's a ton of evidence that this government just distributes favors to its allies to create basically a pliant financial elite and to reward businesses that are run by pro-Orban cronies and to put Orban cronies in charge of businesses. That's how, for example, they control the media, right? Is that they just force corporations to sell to government allies or the government itself. And EU subsidies are a big part of this, right? So they take the subsidies, Orban's government, and distributes it not along the lines of economic need, but along the lines of who do they want to reward at this particular point in time. So anti-corruption measures by the EU, limitations, if not suspensions, on EU subsidies to Hungary in this particular case would certainly be helpful, or at least there's some way to do it, right? Because there are also costs functionally sanctioning a country, and we know that sanctions have significant problems. But I think more broadly, right, for this kind of backsliding, what you need is a media infrastructure, that can get around government control over information, right? Or that can reach populations and and be taken seriously, right? Like the U.S. ran Radio Free Europe during the Cold War to try to get around Soviet censorship and let people in the Iron Curtain know that there were like alternatives and what they were being told were lies. And figuring out a way to develop that kind of model that wouldn't just come across as U.S. government propaganda, but as like an honest Hungarian language in this case, or Turkish language in Turkey, right? Something that could that could speak to people where they are and communicate the reality of their situation effectively in a credible way. That would be really helpful. Do I know how to design that? No. If I did, I would not be working for Vox. <laughs> I would be working for the U.S. government trying to promote democracy around the world. But well, I would say, to be fair, we do still have you know, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty does still exist right, and, and right. Voice of America. But I think that's actually a really interesting point. And it kind of brings it back to like the U.S. case because Voice of America, VOA, is kind of meant to be sort of that, right? To be, I mean, it's an independent press. It, you know, it is independent from the U.S. government, but it is still like funded by the U.S. government and it is still sort of overseen by the government. They have editorial independence to some degree. But under the Trump administration, he basically installed a Bannon crony to run VOA and and tried to turn it into a more overt Trump administration government propaganda arm, which is really disturbing because it's really similar to what Orban has tried to do and has done successfully in Hungary. And so the fact that Tucker Carlson, you know, is the person who is doing this and that he is a huge prominent member of the media is not an accident, right? Very much of this is very focused on the media as the means of communication and means of spreading, you know, these ideas. And Orban has spent money on this, right? He is he has focused his his time, his efforts, his lobbying uh, money in the U.S. to try to, you know, make this happen. And so, you know, back to the kind of internationalization point here. The fact that we have international media outlets and, and things like that, right, it, I think is both, you know, the, the problem 
that we're seeing with the internationalization, but also by some degree that the solution, right? You know, by having more freedom of information, you're able to also hopefully effectively push back against, you know, that narrative. At least that's what we're trying to do, I guess. (laughs) So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about not competitive authoritarian regimes, but authoritarian authoritarian regimes, the real (laughs) sort of classic deal and how they're increasingly exercising influence abroad. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about... Transnational linkages between authoritarian states. I know, very jargony, but I hope it wasn't so jargony when we were talking Ooh, about Hungary transnational last time. linkages do yeah, tell. I know, right? Like I just was instantly transported back to grad school. But uh nerd. So we're we're here now talking about sort of another part of the issue, right? On um, in the first part, we were talking about more subtle authoritarian regimes that exercise influence over their own population and build linkages internationally by kind of pretending to be democracies and offering something ideologically to foreign audiences. Now we're talking about, you know, countries that don't really pretend to be democratic or don't pretend any very seriously, right? That exercise influence in, in different and more direct ways. So Jen Kirby, uh, there's a recent incident that you wrote about during the Olympics that, that shed some light on this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened with this Belarusian sprinter? Yeah, so this Belarusian sprinter, her name is Kristina Tismanaskaya. I'm probably butchering that, but essentially she was sent to go run in the Olympics. And on Instagram, she complained because I suppose her coaches had asked her to run like the four by 400 or they had asked her to participate in a relay event that she hadn't trained for. She was a 200 meter sprinter. And I am no Olympic runner, but I'm pretty sure if you train your whole life for something, you should want to participate in the event that you've trained for. And so she <laughs> criticized her coaches publicly, and this created kind of a instant backlash. And her coaches basically told her, all right, now you've you've got to go home. And um, I was talking to some Belarusian journalists and human rights experts the other day, and one of them sent me this transcript of, you know, basically her coaches, uh, her handlers in Tokyo, basically ordering her to go home. The transcript is, obviously, it's the one that I read was translated into English, but it is extraordinarily chilling. You know, they're basically telling her to go home, that she made a mistake. And they say, you know how a fly just gets itself more entangled the more it struggles after it lands in a web? That's how life works. We do stupid things. You did a stupid thing. It's extraordinarily brutal. And so, 
you know, essentially she was basically saying if she goes home, she will be punished. And so she was looking for asylum. And as of yesterday, she landed in Poland. And um, as far as we know, was is, is safely there. And so she's this high profile case of somebody who received this crackdown, which we don't think of as necessarily like she wasn't speaking out against the regime. She was essentially she wasn't criticizing uh, President Lukashenko, who's been in power for decades. She was talking about her sport. But in an authoritarian country where sport and government are combined, Lukashenko's son is the head of the Olympic Committee. Lukashenko himself held that position. They're basically one and the same. Criticizing your coach is tantamount to kind of criticizing the government. And this may seem sort of a silly thing, but if you peel it back, Right now, Lukashenko is in an extreme crackdown on human rights. Journalists, dissidents, activists, people who casually walk by protests, people who sold protest gear. And maybe I should back up a little bit. This We're coming on the one-year anniversary of election where Lukashenko rigged it basically in his favor. But the dissatisfaction of the country led to massive, massive street protests, sort of the biggest challenge of his career. And he has responded in what journalists and human rights experts have told me, even for him, where repression is kind of the norm, is beyond levels that they've ever seen before, kind of crossing lines. And this Olympic athlete is kind of an example of exactly what is happening to so many people in in Belarus right now. Yeah. And just to kind of add to that, you know, in August 2020, um, more than a thousand athletes, including Olympic medalists, um, signed an open letter calling for new elections uh, in Belarus, Belarusian athletes. Timonovskaya, the, the sprinter, was actually not one of them, interestingly. But uh, but 60 of them were dropped from the national team, lost their funding and were forced to recant or were physically abused. Um, that's according to the executive director of Amnesty International Ukraine, who's been working on cases like this. And so the the thought that she might be, you know, forced to to recant, you know, or, uh, you know, punished in some way, you know, when she went home, you know, when they recalled her with that really chilling, like, you've made a mistake, like a fly in a web. It's like it's like out of a movie. You know, the, the idea that she might be like seriously punished, including potentially like physically, uh, is it, not out of the realm of possibility. Like, it's entirely plausible that that would have happened. So it's understandable why she was like you know, asking for asylum. But I think, you know, more broadly, getting back to the kind of internationalization theme here, the fact that like this is happening, you know, yes, she was part of the Belarusian team, she was out of the country. It's not an isolated incident. Remember, you know, just recently, Belarus intercepted uh, a plane that was flying because there was a Belarusian dissident on board. The Belarusian Air Force basically scrambled and forced the plane to land and then apprehended you could say kidnapped, uh, I would say kidnapped this dissident and, you know, brought him, put him in jail. And so it's not just like it's you're cracking down on, you know, citizens within the country, like they're spreading their reach internationally. And we don't know the situation quite yet. But just this week, also, uh, a Belarusian dissident who runs an organization that actually helps facilitate people who flee Belarus because of the political situation and helps them, you know, find places and and support abroad. This guy was living in, in Ukraine. He was found hanged this week in a park near his apartment. Um, he'd gone out for a run and didn't come back. And then they found him there. And they are now investigating it as potentially a murder, you know, framed to look 
as a suicide. And, you know, again, we don't know the details yet. We don't know if, if this is, you know, what it kind of seems like. But, you know, according to, you know, members of his organization and, and people who knew him, you know, he had been warned repeatedly that he was being monitored about possible assassination attempts. And so it, it's it's not, again, it not implausible that he could have been assassinated. And, and this goes back to, you know, Belarus was part of the Soviet Union and has its own KGB and they're very uh, effective at kind of international you know, operations like this, like we've seen Vladimir Putin carry out, et cetera. And so to me, you know, this story is kind of part of this broader, what I see as like this kind of global war on dissidents. Remember, there was the, just a few weeks ago, there was the the case of, you know, Iranian intelligence officials plotting this apparently, you know, somewhat harebrained kidnapping plot to capture an Iranian-American journalist living in the U.S., and potentially bring her to Venezuela and then back to Iran just because she's critical of the regime. Um, and they were like taking pictures of her like gardening and had pictures of her kids and stuff, according to the FBI and, and the prosecution um, who has brought these charges. You know, again, and you think about Jamal Khashoggi, et cetera. So the fact that, you know, regimes are apparently feeling pretty comfortable going outside their own borders and just capturing and threatening and potentially assassinating citizens just willy-nilly around the world is really disturbing kind of development to me. There are, there are different mechanisms for how this works, right? There's threatening, there's directly killing people. As we've talked about, you know, North Korea has done this as well. But there's also using the, the levers of power given to you as a national government at home to influence people abroad. Right. Some of the most disturbing examples of transnational repression that, that I've read about recently uh, are are from China, and specifically the Uyghur community in China, where you have people who have gotten out or who have relatives, you know, who are, are foreign but have relatives at home, and, and they don't want to say anything publicly or they're intimidated because threats have been communicated to them through the Chinese government to their relatives, that we will harm your family members or your loved ones if you continue to criticize our treatment of your community. Uh, and that, well, well, these other things, you know, you can, if you're the country where somebody was assassinated in, you can definitely make a big stink and challenge the use of force by the government that, that functionally, right, committed an act of, of violence on your territory, aggress sovereign aggression, right? Like there's, there's international tools for talking about assassination to a degree. Um, but what do you do about that, right? This sort of coercion by the exploitation of family ties like that you, you can't airlift this person's entire family out of Xinjiang in this Chi in the Chinese case right you just the Chinese government has figured out a way to leverage its its very very tight grip on power at home into international repression and it's an awful development and it's not obvious to me what can be done to prevent dictatorial regimes from doing things like this. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is, you know, I, I talked to some experts about this and I've I heard to some mixed things about Lukashenko. He he's not Putin, right? Like, you know, he's not gonna catch you on the plane and jab you with some poison. The jet was a huge deal, but it was over uh, Belarusian airspace and Ukraine is a neighbor and has its own problems. So like Lukashenko's reach is not all powerful. But what he does want to do and what he is trying to do in, in taking these moves that have the appearance is to kind of make it seem as if he does have the ability to 
to find you wherever you are. And the goal is for people who are fleeing Belarus, who don't want to come home like the Olympian, is so that when they go to Poland or they go to Ukraine or Lithuania, they never feel safe, right? That is the goal. Whether he is all-powerful and can actually track you down and find you is almost less of the point than the fear that you could potentially be found. So that is a a huge tool of this kind of transnational repression, is making people who do want to go and do want to speak out feel unsafe. And part of the reason why that's so powerful is because you know, some experts told me and, and you know, journalists who uh, cover Belarus but are based elsewhere in the region, you know, before, if you were a journalist and you were based outside of your country, it would be hard to kind of say, like, how are you tapped into what's going on? But that's different now with technology and the way that we communicate and because it's just so unsafe to do your job at home. And so the people who are challenging the regime outside of it have more power. So the regimes have to respond by making it clear that wherever you go, you will not be safe. Whether that is always true or not isn't the point. It's the fear or the belief or the possibility that's that's just as important in many respects. And that to me, you know, is is really the point of all of this, that it's it's chilling, you know, free speech, freedom of the press, willingness to criticize the regimes around the world. Like, you know, you can be in the US, you know, like the the Iranian American journalist um, and activist where we have free speech, where we have freedom of the press, where you're, you know, across an entire ocean <laughs> from Iran and, you know, more than an ocean, in a different part of the world. And yet you may not feel like you have the safety and the protection to be able to continue doing it. Now, Masih Alinejad, the, the woman, <laughs> to her immense, you know, bravery and credit has not been quiet despite all of this. She is still just as outspoken as she was before. But, you know, it it takes a a next kind of level of bravery to keep doing that when you know that you have been targeted like that. And so that's the thing, right? Like, it's not that countries are just repressing people within their own borders. They're making it so that even in countries where you do have freedom of speech, where there is democracy and rule of law, et cetera, people still are not feeling able to speak out. And that is really disturbing because that means that, you know, their their power is is extending much farther and it, extending into other countries and affecting the actual ability to exercise free speech and freedom of the press in countries that have that as part of their constitution. So it's really just a troubling situation. And in terms of, you know, how to deal with it, it's really hard, right? Like like Zach said, you know, it's not like you can go into these these countries and tell them, hey, stop doing that. I mean, we can sanction officials to a certain degree, but doesn't seem like that's particularly effective in actually stopping any of these regimes. To to my knowledge, it's not stopped any of them from doing this. And so, you know, short of war, what do you do, right? And you can potentially provide support and, you know, visas and things like that for people who are fleeing and take in more asylum seekers and stuff like that. But again, if if the fear is like once they're here, they still may not feel safe, like how do you how do you address that? And I don't know the answer. I mean, obviously the FBI in the Iranian American journalist case was on top of this and was following this and and was warning her and, and put her in protective custody and seems to have stopped it before anything happened. So I guess in some degree, it is a law enforcement issue, right? Trying to make sure that these people, you know, these shadowy intelligence figures are not actually allowed to operate with impunity on your soil. Like that seems like the, you know, a good way to, to stop that. But you know, how do how can you be everywhere at once and protect every dissident? Like you can't, and that's really difficult. And the regimes know that. Um, so we're gonna leave you there. 
I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, and I want to give a special thanks to Jen Kirby today because she came to us after a concert that she claimed left her voice scratchy, though I didn't hear it. <laughs> Jen, what concert was it? I don't it? want to admit this on air. You have to you have to tell us now. They have to they have to listen to you. Uh it was a it was a <laughs> It was nineties nineties one hit one no, I don't want to be cruel. It was a good concert. Um it was it was it was a blues traveler. Oh <laughs> um oh, I only, with the with the harmonica. Yeah, I only guy. know one song, which is obviously run around, but it was a lot of fun. They were really good at this concert venue. It's like uh in the South Street Seaport, which I I'm sure opened pre pandemic, but I had never been. Um so it was cool and interesting. See, you thought we were gonna judge you. We're all like, "Oh, that sounds." I no, would have gone you, to that. That sounds fun. Yeah, I don't know. I was expecting something way more embarrassing. I don't know what exactly. <laughs> I was, I was but, really hoping yeah. for Abba. Oh, no. personally. It was just so random. Uh, <laughs> like the, it's general admission, which is cool. And you, so we were like, eh. but you know, I I did only I tried to listen up on the canon before. I think there, <laughs> and that I and there there was another band that opened. Um, but yeah, but it was it was good. It was fun. It was my first concert, and like probably year so it was a, it was a it sounds like fun yeah it does and and so if, if you enjoyed jen's concert conversation you should rate and subscribe and review worldly wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> and uh we'll talk to y'all later bye 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 <laughs>